The Guardian. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, we're off to the movies. Not literally. Imagine how long it'd take for us to agree which film to watch. But we talked to Chris Smith and Ed Vasey about the Film Policy Review Panel's blockbuster report on the future of the British film industry. Would I have uh, abolished the Film Council? No, but we are where we are. Also in the podcast, the latest from the fallout from the phone-hacking scandal as News International stumps up in the High Court. And we take a look at another busy week at the Leveson Inquiry. If the state regulates the press, then the press no longer regulates the state. And that is a, so you see an this... unfortunate state of affairs. Plus, we say a sad farewell to Sherlock in our elementary roundup of what's hot and what's not on the box. Tell me what's wrong. Molly, I think I'm going to die. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. We begin this week with the latest developments in the phone-hacking scandal, and I'm joined by Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology. Dan, Thursday saw a long list of names and payments read out in the High Court as News International settled many of the high-profile cases against it. What did we learn? Well, we learned that 18 cases are settled. You know, uh, people like you know John Prescott, formerly Deputy Prime Minister, uh, had his phone hacking case settled. And above all, Jude Law, who got £130,000 plus costs. What was all that about? Well, Jude was talking about a campaign of harassment by the news of the world that is being followed, you know, followed around. He and Sienna Miller were sort of changed their sort of phones to what they thought were secret phone numbers, if you will, and that wasn't good enough. So uh, what we learned was that what we knew already, but we may perhaps have been forgotten that hacking was a sort of seen as a standard tool of journalistic enterprise at the news of the world, that it was widespread and used repeatedly to pursue stories. The Metropolitan Police, of course, have identified 800 victim, hacking victims in total. So we could be looking at quite a sort of chunky sort of payout and damages when all said and done. Uh, you know, you can do the maths anywhere you like, but average it out, what, sort of 30,000, you're getting to £24 million. Pounds. That's a lot of money. And you mentioned there the 800 figure. Does that mean that this is going to become a regular occurrence, this sort of um, parade of names and figures? In the, in the... I guess so. I, I guess so. I think we'll, we'll write about it with less, with less vigour as it becomes more familiar and some of the names may be less well known. But, but one of the things that's happening here, in effect, is a kind of tariff for, for claims is being set, um, you know, largely in the sort of mid to low five figures, uh, but maybe a bit more in the more exceptional cases. And uh, yes, OK, some cases might go to court. We've also learned something else, and this is an important point of law or important subtlety, which is the lawyers have got extracted damages from News International on the basis that there was a cover-up by the company and that emails and evidence was destroyed by it. The company here is News Group Newspapers. That's the publisher of the News of the World and also, as it happens, The Sun, which is a subsidiary of... News, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. And that his directors were actually involved in this uh, sort of destroying evidence and so forth. Now, that's important in the sense that that's quite a powerful accusation to level. On the other hand, we'd better say this, that News Corp doesn't actually, although it paid out on that basis, it didn't accept that. But nevertheless, it's an interesting indication of the direction of travel. It certainly adds to a bit of pressure on some senior figures, most of whom have now departed from the uh, employment of News Corporation. Well, it's been a rare day off for the Leveson inquiry, but uh, Lord Justice Leveson will presumably be taking a keen interest in events at the High Court today. How's, how's it going to feed into that? If there were those that doubted why the Leveson inquiry was set up, and I think briefly there was a sort of mood that perhaps if it wasn't the case that 
voicemail messages were deleted on Millie Dowler's phone uh, by the News of the World. If that wasn't the case, then perhaps somehow Leveson shouldn't have been set up, which is a pretty tortured kind of logic. But th- that was doing the rounds. But I think this is sort of a reminder of, you know, the gravity of what happened. This was phone hacking on an industrial scale. And, and I'm not sure you know, if the paper was still around today, could it have survived this with a management who were clearly um, increasingly sort of exasperated at uh, what it had got up to and the damage it was doing for them. Well, the Leveson Inquiry heard from editors including The Guardian's Alan Rushbridger and from Private Eye editor Ian Hislop, among others. Um, what were the highlights, if I can phrase it that way? Uh, well, Monday we, Monday we heard evidence from all the Mirror Group editors and Richard Wallace, editor of the Daily Mirror, was put on the spot a bit about phone hacking and asked, for example, whether the Sven or Rika story was derived from phone hacking and, and a lot of one word answers from from Richard Wallace lots of probabilities and possibilities and might have been uh, it's a bit more than one word but you know what I mean he was very you know he was very careful to say I didn't know about any phone hacking and I certainly wasn't involved in it but he was also equally careful to say might have gone on without me knowing about it um, then of course yes on, on Tuesday we had our old parade of editors uh, Ian Heslop in the morning who was sort of funny and entertaining Heslop's private eyes outside the PCC he pointed out but he had no great desire to go in it. Why? Because when you run Street of Shame, you're probably going to be have all your sort of all these people you're slagging off, all these other editors sitting in judgment on you, and that's not a pretty place to be. Which was actually quite a convincing point, <laughs> but was a bit, I think, seduced a bit by Lord Leveson's suggestion of well, why don't we have a sort of low cost sort of libel and privacy tribunal? And Lord Leveson's not overly keen on people second guessing him. But is there any more clues in the way in which he's headed? There certainly were. And uh, look, he keeps coming back. He's hypothesis testing, but he keeps coming back to the same hypotheses. There's two problems he's really interested in. Not his words, they're mine. Uh, there's a McCann problem, the McCann's problem, which is you know, after you've heard the evidence of Kate and Jerry McCann, who were well and truly introduced by the Express Group newspapers in particular, after the evidence, you know, it was clear there is a problem with, with, with tabloid reporting at the moment, these sort of big frenzied stories, uh, or there has been. And... I don't think he's going to sort of, you know, come up with a set of recommendations which just leave the McCanns with no, with no redress, you know, or the next set of McCanns, God forbid, with no redress. So he clearly wants some kind of a libel privacy mediation service with teeth that can intervene quite quickly. The carrot for the newspapers would be cheap, but something that really sort of intervene with some heavy boots on standards and issues to really sort of hopefully clamp some of those things down. So he's very much suing that. And which Desmond and, uh, and other papers must, must belong to. Indeed. And the second problem is the Desmond problem, as you say. If we create a son of PCC that's got a bit more teeth and power to fine and standards on, as, as many editors are now talking about, and broad consensus is, you've got to have Richard Desmond in it. Because if you don't have someone in it, uh, what's the, almost what's the point? It loses a lot of credibility. The only way to solve that problem is through an enabling law. I mean, I can't see. Maybe there's a brighter man than I or brighter woman than I can see something different. He's got to deal with those two problems. And though you can see that sort of, you know, all over his thinking, which is one of the reasons why I was wanting to ask, you know, in his lot, would he ever join the PCC? And finally, our eternal final question. What's up next week? The broadcasters are up next week and the PCC is coming soon. I think the PCC evidence will be really interesting because... It'll be a chance for Lord Hunt, and I presume he'll be going, the new chairman to sort of canvas what what the future looks like, what a tougher PCC might look like. OK, Dan Sabah, thanks very much. And more, as ever, on all this at mediaguardian.co.uk. <laughs> Time now for our trip to the movies and the publication of the government-commissioned blueprint for the future of the British film industry. 
Brit flicks are on a roll right now, from the King's Speech to the Inbetweeners and much, well, in between. Panel chairman Lord Smith, you may remember him as former Culture Secretary Chris Smith, came up with a whole host of ideas to maintain their success, from a British Film Week to more film education in schools, and a call on ITV and B Sky B to invest more money in domestic film production. But the 56-point report was overshadowed by David Cameron's comments last week that the British film industry and the £18 million of national lottery money it currently receives should support commercially successful pictures. It fuelled fears that public money would be steered towards blockbusters at the expense of art house fare. So I began by asking Lord Smith whether his review would lead to a more mainstream British film industry. I hope that uh, this review will lead to a more consistently successful British film industry. And that will be both mainstream and less mainstream. Uh, there's, a, there's room for a whole range of different types of movie to be made. And uh, I hope that the proposals that we make uh, will make it easier for uh, independent producers up and down the country uh, to come forward with a wide variety of different types of movie. David Cameron appeared to suggest last week that public funding should go towards more commercially successful film projects. Is that a point of view you agree with? Well, I think there was quite a lot of misreporting of what uh, the Prime Minister was saying last week. There is absolutely room for commercially successful movies to be made. And um, I'm delighted that, uh, for example, The King's Speech has now made something like £400 million around the world. I'm delighted that other movies this year, like In Between Us, like Johnny English, have been commercially successful. That's terrific and let's have more of that. But let's not forget the importance of some of those smaller scale movies that uh, don't uh, necessarily fall into the uh, the title of mainstream commercial, but nonetheless find audiences. We need to talk about Kevin, Shame, The Deep Blue Sea, a whole range of movies, very critically successful movies that have appeared this year from independent uh, British producers. These are the sorts of movie that find an audience that will never be wildly commercially successful, but nonetheless are worth making. But do you think the test is going to be tougher for art house films that don't necessarily have big box office appeal in, in the future? I don't think that we should talk about uh, tests being tough or not tough. One of the things we want to see uh, is uh, where you have a producer who's uh, made a movie that's made a bit of money. So it's been a success with its audiences. It doesn't mean it's made up 400 million, but it's, but it's made a return on its investment. Where that's the case, that money should be able to be reinvested by the same producer into making more movies. That way, I hope we will get more sustainable independent production companies who have a run of success, can recycle and reinvest the money that they, uh, that they make and have a more sustainable operation. Would this whole process be easier if the Film Council were still in existence? Would I have uh, abolished the Film Council? No, but uh, we are where we are, where we are, and uh, it, it, it actually makes quite a lot of sense to bring the whole leadership of film into one place in the BFI. One of the recommendations we make in our report is that the BFI needs to step up to the plate, exercise that leadership role. We suggest some of the ways in which that uh, that can happen. I, I think potentially the future is bright. The thoughts of Lord Smith. How many of the film panel's 56 proposals become reality will depend on the government, of course, which is due to make a formal response within the next few months. I asked Culture Minister Ed Vasey, who commissioned the thing, for a rather more instant reaction. I think Chris Smith and the whole film policy review team put an enormous amount of work into it. I think uh, 
uh, you'll see in the report that he met hundreds of people, received hundreds of submissions. And I think it's a good overview covering all the bases, both the importance of film culturally and film education, skills and the need to continue to invest in skills, and also uh, to ensure that the public money we put into films does go some way to trying to create a sustainable British film industry. One of the suggestions is that British broadcasters, in particular ITV and Sky, should put more money into filmmaking. And there was even the suggestion from Chris Smith that there might be legislation uh, to enforce that if they don't do it voluntarily. What are your thoughts on that? How do you think they're going to receive that? Well, I'll be interested to sit down with ITV and Sky and hear what their reaction is to the report. Uh, I think it's interesting that Sky has invested more recently in original British content and makes great play of the fact that it invests in... British drama, I think Sky as an organisation is changing in terms of its relationship with its subscribers. And for me, it would be a natural evolution for Sky to start investing in British film, but they will obviously have their point of view. They're a commercial company and I'll be interested to see what they have to say. Do you think multiplexes will embrace the idea of a British film week, which is another one of the report suggestions? Well, Odeon has led the way in promoting British films. They've now got a logo to highlight the fact that there are British films and they do have a sort of British film day so uh, I think there is again an appetite from the exhibitors to promote British film. Now, the other thing I think is important kind of leading on from that question is I think the way that the report has been received by the press and by film stakeholders shows I think a kind of degree of much greater unity across all the kind of film stakeholders, exhibitors, distributors, producers, funders, all of whom I think have a yearning to see British film cherished and more successful. So I hope we can capitalise on what, you know, I hope I'm not being overly romantic here, it appears to be a kind of strong sense of goodwill towards the British film industry and, an, and a kind of commitment to do even better. And your favourite British film of 2011? But you can't say King's Speech, obviously. <laughs> well, I haven't seen Tinker or My Week with Marilyn yet, so I'm not going to give a final judgement until I've seen those, which I hope to see very shortly. My five minutes with Ed there. I'm joined now by Alex Needham, culture editor of Guardian.co.uk. Alex, what were your thoughts on the report? Was it an Oscar winner or worthy of a golden raspberry? I thought it kind of fell between the two, really. I mean, I suppose for what it will do for the film industry, I mean, we don't know until the till the government comes back with what they intend to do. But actually, I think it was pretty sensitive to the film industry's needs. And I think some of the recommendations are good, like British Film Week, I quite like the idea of. And um, and also the idea of digitising everything, putting it in one place, is very good. And to put the onus on ITV and B Sky B to uh, support more British film. I mean, I suppose these are all concrete recommendations. It's just how many of them are actually going to come off. Yeah, ITV and B Sky B, they were quite polite with their, their responses. They seem to be saying, we're probably not going to, but they, it, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> they obviously didn't want to... Uh, didn't want to irk Chris Smith or Ed Vasey too much before the government comes up with its formal response. No, exactly. Were there any sort of stinkers in there, things that won't take off? I wasn't quite sure about the idea of, of lending projection equipment to, um, to rural and, and out-of-the-way communities <laughs> so they can have their own cinema. Isn't that a bit redundant in the age of you know, digital TV and 40-inch plasmas? Probably. I mean, I did, I did quite like that just for, the, just for the idea of all these film clubs getting a, getting a boost. But yes, you, you're probably right that it is it's a bit local here. redundant. I mean, they wanted the idea was that it's going to be a big communal experience. But I think the communal experience, probably most people's idea of a good time, isn't sat in a drafty um, community, <laughs> community centre watching yeah. an old Ealing comedy. And will um, it be able to cope with 3D? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, how optimistic are you for the future of the film industry? I mean, it's, it's a funny old industry, isn't it? In the... It is. I mean, it's been a brilliant year. 
And I think that there is the momentum to sustain that. You know, you had the King's Speech, of course, but then there are there are the artier films like Shame. And I mean, I always remember when I was growing up, British film, it used to be kind of Derek Jarman films on Channel 4. And then obviously you had the UK Film Council, Sex Lives of the Potato Men. Now we're producing classy stuff. And I think people have... You know, I think the fact that it gets acclaimed at Venice and Cannes will, will yeah, create a momentum as a sort of virtuous circle, as this um, report says about something else. Who can, who can forget Derek Jarman's Blue? <laughs> well, do you know, I really like that film. But, you did? Um, yeah. But, I mean, I don't think that's the idea of British film that David Cameron would be applauding when he says things should be more like Harry Potter. And just finally, was Chris Smith right? Do you think the media overrate Cameron's comments about the future of film last week? I don't actually, because he said that kind of thing before. I mean, when he visited the Harry Potter set a couple of years ago, he said, oh, this is the kind of British film we should be making, Harry Potter. I mean, he didn't put it as blatantly this time, but I do think that that's clearly what he thinks. But obviously, it's a pretty ludicrous thing to say, because how can you tell in advance when something is going to be a hit or not? And also, you know, a few years ago, the there were loads of British alleged surefire hits being churned out, mostly starring Danny Dyer, and obviously they, you know, Lois Comedy nominated thing. But even the people they were they were aimed at didn't want to see him. So, I think the British film industry is probably best investing in quality in as nebulous a t- and difficult to pin down a term as that is. And if Danny Dyer wants to come on and respond to that, is welcome on the pod. <laughs> My thanks to Alex. You can find plenty more at mediaguardian.co.uk and, of course, on the Guardian's film site, guardian.co.uk slash film. Time now for television. And I'm joined for this part of the pod by The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost, and by Media Guardian reporter, Tara Conlon. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. Well, there's only one TV show in town this week. Well, there's a few more. But anyway, we're going to start off with Sherlock. Having delivered bumper viewing figures for BBC One and a pre-Watershed near-nudity scandal for the Daily Mail, the Sunday night drama excelled itself with a nail-biting cliffhanger of a finish. One minute is dead, next minute is alive. Oh, what on earth is going on? Vicky, what happened? Well, I think what happened was Sherlock did jump off the roof, but then he dropped into that handy garbage truck, and then opinion is divided. Some people think he then rolled out the bottom of the truck and got some blood that Molly had given him and put it all over his head and pretended basically to have died. And you'll have noticed that John, A, couldn't see the point of him hitting the floor and B, wasn't allowed to take his pulse. So it might just have been Sherlock, but alive, pretending. Or he dropped off the building, but he also changed his clothes with Moriarty, who is, of course, dead, and pushed Moriarty's body off the building too, so that then Moriarty became his corpse. And how did Moriarty change his face? That's because Moriarty had made a very, very good mask of Sherlock's face, which he had shown to the child who then screamed when she saw Sherlock. Now, obviously, when you say that out loud, the second one sounds a little bit more far-fetched. Only a little. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not sure that anything can be too far-fetched for Sherlock. Tara, what did you make of it all? What do you think was a triumphant finish? I think it was, yeah. I sort of, I watched him, he fell off, and you go, <gasps> and then you see him reappear, and you go, oh, okay. I thought it was a it was a, it was was a fitting end, it was a perfect ending, really, and it's very kind of Stephen Moffat thing to do, isn't it? But Vicky, it's been a massive success. It's was it as good as the first success. series? That's my question for you. Uh, yes, I think it was, actually. And it's a hard thing to sustain. I mean, you have got sort of three 90-minute shows. I mean, 
you know, that's a lot of TV at, at high quality. So, yeah, I think it came off very much. Well, as one drama finishes, another starts. And BBC One's latest Sunday night phenomenon is called The Midwife, which had uh, eight and a half million viewers, which is right slap bang in sort of Sherlock Downton territory. Vicky, what did you make of it? It's not for me, I think, is my answer to that. I mean, I think it's, if you like that sort of warm bath Sunday night uh, kind of television, and I think it's great. Um, and obviously the book was an absolute publishing phenomenon. Is it a sort um, of 50s memoirs? Is basically yeah, that, right? yeah, 50s memoir of a midwife. And to my mind, it's just all a bit syrupy and not really my sort of thing. It's not what I'd choose to watch. And the first straight acting role for uh, Miranda Hart, uh, who it appears can do no wrong. Uh, although she does really just be Miranda Hart, to be completely fair. Does she I mean, fall over occasionally? She, she, you know, she's sort drop of, the baby, I hope. She's <laughs> kind of posh, uh, kind of a bit not very good, no, you know, midwife who's... I can understand why she was cast, but I don't think it's a stretch, let's say. The yeah. Tara broadcasters love a hit Sunday night drama. It's almost as important to them as uh, sort of a big entertainment show on Saturday night now. They, yeah, they are on a big period dramas. We remember on Sunday nights for the, for the Beeb, um, things like Heartbeat. I mean, it goes right back to sort of you know by the sword divided, doesn't it? Days. It, it's a difficult one to to pull off though. And when they when they get them, they're big hits. I mean, but then you look at what was against um, Call the Midwife, Wild at Heart, which you know was a big one for for Sunday night. For IT, on Sunday nights for ITV and I think so now, these things go go in yeah. in phases it's a giraffe that's had its day isn't it I think Wilder Hart it's had the lion's, lion's of share of the ratings <laughs> talking of calling the midwife Channel 4 had another big hit this week with 15 kids and counting which uh, as the title suggests uh, well, it did exactly what it says on the side of the cot uh, one of the family featured were expecting their 15th child um, Vicky was this uh, in the shock doc category or was it rather better than that do you think I think it was better than that, actually. Um, I mean, it didn't sort of play quite into that whole Daily Mail scrounging off benefits sort of uh, line that you might have expected it to, perhaps. I thought it was more subtle than that. I thought there was uh, it raised some interesting questions. But, yeah, Channel 4 do seem to have a camera in every single hospital in the country at the moment, I think. They've got one born every minute, and then they had 24 hours in A&E. Yep. And now they have a new thing about nurses on mm. More 4, which is another observational documentary in a hospital. And it does slightly feel a bit like... I've seen enough of inside hospitals now, thank you. That's that's enough for me. Well, then you've got clinics, live from the clinic. You've got... oh, yes, of course. Is that Channel 4 as well? <laughs> yep, yep, hopefully that's coming back. What we need to return is Animal Hospital with Rolf Harris. <laughs> maybe that's stretching it. Uh, but Vicky, tell us, what's coming up next week? Is it all about birdsong? I hope it is all about birdsong, actually, because it is a lovely, lovely thing. And when's this on? BBC One? Sunday. It's in the Sherlock slot. And Abby Morgan, who has written... <laughs> she seems to have written everything there is at the moment. But um, she has done the adaptation. And uh, she was saying at a screening at BAFTA that actually 90 minutes gave her a lot more room to... Pl- uh, two 90 minutes gave her a lot more room to play with than a film would have done, for instance. It's absolutely beautiful in a quite bleakly beautiful way. I absolutely loved it. I think it's really quality. It's from Working Title Television. It stars Eddie Redmayne, who is fantastic in it. I've only seen the first part, but I'm very impressed by it. Okay, snap question. So what's his, what's his audience going to be? Give me an overnight prediction. I, I reckon eight. I think eight. it could do eight. Tara? Ooh. Won't hold you to this, but we will. 7.2. 7.2, OK. I mean, it's a hugely popular book, and it's taught in schools, which I think is a thing as well, you know. They're... See, you didn't tell me that beforehand. Um, I'm upping it to 8.5. <laughs> <laughs> to 8.1, that'd be hugely irritating. <laughs> yeah. and well, Tara and Vicky, thanks very much. 
On that note, it's time to draw things to a close. My thanks to Vicky Frost and Tara Conlon, and you can find out exactly how many people watch Birdsong by going to mediaguardian.co.uk. Well, you can if you go after Monday lunchtime. If you want to give us your feedback on anything you've heard, head over to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalk, or drop on over to our Facebook page. Media Talk was this week produced by Simon Barnard, and I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.